0: Anybody who's been through this transition, I think, knows the experience of knowing things in a way that you know it's true, and it's not trauma, it's not, you know, bias, it's just something that feels fundamentally true, and it just got to the point where I couldn't ignore it, especially when I was getting such good results in my client work as I started to transition into this more spiritual uh,
1: approach to my work. Hello and welcome to the Wordful Woman podcast. I'm Cristina, your host, and my guests are people who operate at the intersection of science and spirituality. It is my great pleasure today to speak with Catherine Creighton Crook. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's awesome having you on. Let's tell listeners a little bit about who you are. So, dear listeners, Catherine Creighton Crook is a healing facilitator, intuitive empath, as well as a multi-award winning sports and remedial massage therapist. Catherine didn't used to believe in anything that didn't have a solid scientific explanation, but after experiencing past life memories and realizing she is able to feel her clients' emotions, see energy in their bodies, and hear their body talking to her, she decided to lean into the spiritual unknown while applying scientific methods like recording and collating data to track patterns and reactions. In other words, to incorporate spirituality in her work in a grounded, scientifically-informed way. Catherine's mission is to support people in connecting with their body and releasing whatever is creating pain or holding them back from showing up in the ways that they're meant to. So with that, Catherine, perhaps we should kick this off with you telling us a little bit about your journey from going from spiritual skeptic to spiritual practitioner.
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I, growing up, had experiences with people who would believe that their intuition meant that they were like all-knowing and had very interesting perspectives on the world. And so what I did as almost like a... I guess I would call it a defense mechanism, but just a way of grounding myself, is I really looked for the logic in things and where there was external proof and objective proof, because that was like, I could attach myself to that, right? This makes logical sense. We have evidence for this. And I think that's how I really went into like a very evidence-based approach. And then obviously with my work as a sport and remedial massage therapist, It's like okay if we release this muscle does it make a difference yes or no it's something that both me and the client can see it's very easy to test retest observe the outcomes and so while i knew people especially working in the complementary field who believed in things like spirituality and past lives and i had actually grown up religious so i had a belief in god and you know some sort of spirituality for the most part i was like okay everybody can believe what they want to believe. But I'm going to wait until we have some evidence for things. And that was basically how I operated for a really long time. But then, as you said in your intro, I started to – like the first thing that actually happened is that I would start to almost feel like I could hear people's bodies talking to me, which I know we're going to go into a little bit more detail about what that means later. And I would say things and people would be surprised that I could feel them. So that was kind of like the first – Like sprite sprouts of information, and sometimes I would get pictures in my mind when I was working with people, and I could see things or I knew things about their past or their experiences, and it really defied my understanding of what was possible, right? Because that's not testable. You can't take it out and 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 kind of observe it. And then as I kind of went more into it, I started having my own past life memories, and. Anybody who's been through this transition, I think, knows the experience of knowing things in a way that you know it's true, and it's not trauma, it's not, you know, bias, it's just something that feels fundamentally true. And it just got to the point where I couldn't ignore it, especially when I was getting such good results in my client work as I started to transition into this more spiritual Uh, approach to my work.
1: You talk about having these direct experiences that went against what you knew at the time um, and the way that you saw the world. Did you ever doubt these experiences?
0: A hundred percent, a hundred percent I did and I actually think doubt is a really powerful tool that we have and we underestimate how useful it can be. doubt to me is just another way of saying testing it. I think I'm a little bit skeptical of anybody who believes anything wholeheartedly the first time it's presented to them who doesn't kind of look at what are the assumptions in this? Um what are the experiences of people bringing this information? Um and to be honest to this day I still doubt sometimes. So I have to look at it as a balance of probabilities and you know i think also having guardrails in place so i consider like my ethics and my values my guardrails so even if there are things that i'm not 100% sure of i can at least be sure that i'm not doing harm or you know as close to not doing harm as possible um but yeah 100% doubt is a part of my repertoire
1: tell us a bit about these guardrails cuz i think this is something that's very practical on the journey of changing your mind, even if you don't change your mind towards something spiritual, spiritual necessarily. Um, But what kind of guardrails do you have in place personally and professionally? Um,
0: Yeah, so I do have a code of ethics on my website, which you may have seen. Um, And I don't think that encompasses everything. But those are some of the main ones. And the way that I think of these guardrails is I think, you know, Regardless of whether you think that people are soul seeds or chose to be human, have past lives, come from aliens, all of these things, the fact is we are living in a human world where there's real effects on human people. So if you can have a set of ethics and values that mean that you aren't going to, for example, invalidate other people's experiences um one of my very top code of ethics when i work with people is that your connection to your body is sovereign and what that means is that if i connect into your body and i feel something but you feel something different or it doesn't resonate with you you are your body your connection to the body is the one that we go with and usually i find that it like matches up in the end or something is explained later but one of the abuses that i think that i see in the spiritual world Is that because people believe they have this direct line for channeling or the guides or some you know other authority they start to proclaim their truth on other people and expect other people to accept it even if it doesn't go along with their intuition Mm -hmm. so for me having that in place where it's like no matter what i get i always know it's coming through my own human filter and my own limited perspective so If there is a choice between what I'm feeling about your experience and what you're feeling about your experience, your experience wins, so to speak. And I believe that means that I'm not going to end up coercing someone into doing something that ultimately they don't feel comfortable with. So that's kind of an example of what I
1: mean by guardrails. Does that make sense? Answer your question. Yeah, absolutely. And I really loved what you said about us living in the real world with real consequences because... I feel there's a little bit of a trap as well in starting to embrace some of the spiritual ideas, because if we think at a macro level, it may well be that everything works towards good in the end and, you know, at a very, very macro level. But if you go at a human level, suffering is very real. Being unethical is very real. So I think it's important that you ground spirituality back into this very human arena at Mm end of the day where we do have these considerations. And I also love what you said about you filtering, uh, well, not just you, but anyone who is channeling information. When you do channel this information, you do receive it through your own human filter that's colored by your own experiences, perceptions, biases, and so forth. Um, And while keeping that in mind, I'm still very curious, and I know listeners will be curious, how do you actually see energy in people's bodies or how do you feel things from people's bodies
0: yeah okay um so i love this question because it's a question i always ask people because one of the things that i think is true fundamentally about language is how limiting it is and you can just see them by how many new words we have to create on a regular basis to try and keep up with our advances in society so i think a lot of people use Words like seeing energy or channeling and actually the experience of it is different. That's why I love this question. So for a long time, I didn't think I could see energy because people talk about like looking at people and kind of seeing energy around them. And I was like, well, I don't do that. But then what I realized is, so for me, what happens is I get pictures in my mind when I connect to things. So one example is I was working with someone and um, we were working around a specific organ. And when I kind of connected into it, I got this picture in my mind of what looked like a kind of foggy cloud surrounding it. And I was like, oh, I'm seeing energy, right? And we figured out what it is and we were able to clear it. So a lot of times it is that I will get a picture in my mind and I will get a feeling of of how heavy it is or how light it is or Thick or what it's made of and then I always try to corroborate that with what my client has experienced sometimes it's the same sometimes it's a little bit different so that's how I describe seeing energy it's not something that is like I'm looking at someone and I can see something around them that's more like I will see it in my head and it will kind of show up in different shapes what was the other question about feeling
1: so you've you've described how you how you see energy in people's bodies. Um, but another aspect um, of your gift is also the ability to feel what people feel. So I was wondering how that's how you experience that. Yeah, so that's actually kind of fun, because I
0: have to be very careful, because initially, I would think it was my emotions. So I, for example, would work with someone and release something, and then I get really happy and giggly. And I'd be like, why am I so happy? But it was actually the body, right? So it's, it's exactly like when I say I can feel things, so there's two ways. So I can feel the emotions of people most of the time. And what will happen sometimes is I'll connect into to work on a specific part of the body and I'll be like, whoop, there's sadness in there. Cause I'll start to feel sad. I'll start to feel like I want to cry. Um, I have had a client recently and it was like, oh, I feel sadness, but it's pure sadness. Whereas other people, it'll be sadness with grief or sadness with loss or anxiety or nervousness. And it is exactly as if I would feel it in my own body. So it feels like my own experience, but I can tell, especially from having worked with so many clients, that that's not me that's feeling it, it's them. And either I feel it at the same time as they do, or sometimes what will happen is I will feel the emotion and the client will be like, yeah, I don't feel anything. And then like 10, 15 seconds later, they're like, oh, there it is. And then they'll start crying or they'll, they'll feel the thing. Uh, And that's really helpful for me, I find, because not everyone is is great at verbalizing what they're feeling. So because I can feel it, I can then verbalize what I think it is, and then they can tell me if I'm I'm right or wrong. And it helps give them language for what they're feeling. And then the other way is I can sometimes get pains that my clients have. So uh, last year I was working and I do clinic days every once in a while. And the client came in and my wrist started to hurt. And I was like, oh... Why is my wrist hurting all of a sudden? Like, this is really uncomfortable. Like, I haven't done anything to it. And my client goes, Oh, yeah, I wanted to tell you my wrist was hurting. And I was like, Does it feel like this? And I described the pain that I had in my wrist. Mm-hmm. And and they said, Yeah, that that's exactly what it feels like. Uh, and then I worked on their arm a bit and did some things. And then I was like, Oh, my wrist doesn't hurt anymore. And I was like, Can you check your wrist? Does it feel better? Oh yeah, it is better now. So sometimes I actually feel the physical sensations of what people feel. That must be really exhausting sometimes. <laughs> um. So I think one of the things that's really lucky is with my massage therapy background, I did a lot of focus on like energetic barriers and protecting my energy and like, you know, clearing out energy between sessions. So I have a habit of good energetic hygiene, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it can be, like, I always need a break after my sessions, right? When I do, especially, like, the healing facilitation and, and that kind of body work, I usually need about 20 minutes after just to kind of, like, recenter myself. But um, I think because it feels so good to be able to have that connection with people and support them, it balance out whatever the kind of energetic cost
1: of supporting people in that way has. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And I think this idea of energetic hygiene is really important. I find it really important personally because I was only taught it a couple of years ago and I, I saw on my own skin how much of a difference it can actually make. And I do not have a gift that's, you know, s- the same or similar as yours, but I still feel that sometimes, I, I and I say I feel very deliberately because I can't know it. <laughs> Or maybe I can, but I do feel sometimes we pick up on people's states. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can see that with my loved ones as well. Sometimes my husband says, you know, what's up with you? And I didn't say anything. I just kind of showed up. <laughs> around him. And I think we do pick up on these things, but we don't realize, we don't often realize we do and that we do need to have that sort of hygiene around what is ours and what is not ours. Um, I'm curious, do you ever... Do you only pick up on these images and feelings um, when you work with clients, or do they sometimes leak you know, in other settings as well? Like when we hopped on this call, could, could you kind of like pick up on my state as well, or is that not something that usually happens? So I try very hard not
0: to connect to people without their permission, right, and their consent. And um, every once in a while, something will come through, um, without me intending it, right. Where it's just like something perks up and I notice it. And honestly, sometimes I feel like it's bodies trying to get my attention. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I just don't think it's, I just don't think it's right to read somebody's energy without their permission. You know, it's like, you wouldn't, you know, if you had x-ray vision, you wouldn't look at people and use your x-ray vision to see them with their clothes off. So I don't think it's very considerate to read people's energy. And I actually, I'd never thought of it. And I, cause I get Reiki, uh, locally on a pretty regular basis. And years ago, um, the person I see for Reiki said that she'd gone to see someone and he'd said something about her energy and, She was like, how dare you read my energy without my permission? And when she said it, I was like, yeah, actually, that's horrible. Like, you should not do that. So even though sometimes I can pick it up a little bit, I, in general, have a practice where I'm not looking. I'm trying not to pay attention to it. So it's only when people ask me. But every once in a while, I do get on calls with people. And people will go, like, just, like, connection calls, right? Not client calls. And people will go, oh, my shoulder just started hurting all of a sudden. I was like think your body wants to talk to me (laughs) let me hop on
1: this connection (laughs) call I got
0: this (laughs) and it's funny because it's happened a couple of times where it's just like a friend call and I'm like well let's just do like five minutes because clearly your body wants to tell you something and it it is it does and then we do it and then it's better
1: and they feel like oh that's great but you know I think bodies recognize me sometimes yeah that's that's awesome and you know, I wanna come back to this idea of of bodies as entities in their own right, because I, I really love how that showed up in your response here. I just wanna circle back real quickly to um, what you said about every channel or, or intuitive picking up things through their own lens. And it makes me wonder when we have experiences such as past life memories, um, do you think they are objectively past lives that we have had? Or do you think they're more likely to be models that our minds use to translate something they want to say, but they know we wouldn't understand it, so they kind of bring this metaphor to our consciousness for us to kind of gain a message from?
0: Um, so, I mean, the the short answer is, I don't know. Uh, the the more in-depth answer is, I think that there's a lot of possibilities, and um so I think it was you actually who mentioned the study where some children had had past life memories and it had been um, confirmed or something like
1: that. Wasn't that a conversation that we had on Instagram once? I think it was in reference to the research at the Uni of Virginia um, on past life memories. Yeah. And a lot of children who did remember them and they were confirmed as well. They remembered something like a past life and a life that was matching that existed (laughs) let's say those were the facts
0: yeah and you know i've had clients where when they're connecting into their body their body comes up with a a, um like a past life uh that was a relative and then they go and confirm that that relative existed and, and lived in the time period that it came up with so i think i like to hold space for everything being possible that we can't prove or disprove otherwise. But I think past life is a great example because it could be that our soul has lived through multiple lives. It could be that there's a fabric of energetic consciousness that we're all a part of and that for some reason, we're able to tap into certain things. Um, It could be that there is a genetic component that's being passed down. And that's the way that genetic component expresses itself in our memory. I, my gut is that there is a truth to past lives, like that it's not just completely made up. But because it's not really something that we can prove one way or the other for sure, right? Even those children who had those confirmed past life memories, how do we know that our because our soul or our mind isn't tapping into a collective unconscious or that it's somehow embedded in in their being in a different way? Um, And I also really encourage my clients when I'm working with them and stuff like that comes up to stay within the realm that feels comfortable for them. So in my mind, one, I would say probably 80% sure that there is a past life element to past lives, but I wouldn't be able to say exactly what that is. There is a connection, especially when it shows up in like fears and traumas that we have that we've never had in our life. Like I've had work with people where something came up from a past life um, and it's like, Oh, this is why I've had this irrational fear my whole life. This is why I was afraid of these people dying my whole life. This is why I was afraid of losing these people because in a past life that had happened. And when it came up, all of those feelings came up with it. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think anybody has to accept a belief that they don't want to. So if something like that comes up in a session and the person feels more comfortable thinking of it as a metaphor or more comfortable of like just their body, giving them an example, then we go with that. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's really important that we all feel encouraged to stay within what we feel comfortable with when we're going through things like this.
1: Yeah. And especially because we currently have no way of knowing for sure. I mean, some I, I I can also see a reaction to this as you know rolling your eyes and being like Jesus, how much more evidence do we need? But if if you go with the strict scientific spirit, we the data that we have is that yes, there are memories who ma- that match the life that existed, but that could also be. Something like akin to telepathy, or that I believe you were alluding to as well. So we, we just cannot know for sure, but everyone can kind of have their own mental model of what's actually going on. So thank you yeah. for bringing that up. I think it's a very important distinction. Um, and speaking of mental models, um, there is a question that I occasionally like to ask on this podcast, um, mm-hmm. especially people who can see energy. Uh, Because I'm still wrapping my mind around what mm, energy is when we talk about it in the spiritual context. So how would you define it?
0: Oh, that's such a good question. So I actually believe that energy has a physical form that we can't measure yet and that it takes up space on some sort of level. And the main reason that I believe that is because when I very, very first started working with releasing emotions from the body, like when I didn't really know what was going on, but I was like, okay, you know, I was just still doing like massage therapy and visceral manipulation. This liver isn't moving. Um, client, can you open your mind and see if like there's an emotion in here that needs to be released? When I started doing that, there's a massive amount of heat that is released when people connect in and release the emotion or the experience that's being held in the body. And there's tingling as well. And after people feel like there's more space there and function improves or movement improves. And so all that to me points to this idea that there was something physical that was taking up space and restricting it that now has been released. Mm -hmm. But that kind of defies all of our understanding of matter at this point. So I don't really know how that's possible, but I just like to think, you know, we didn't really know much about electricity before we discovered it and we have to measure it in a different way than we measure matter, for example. So maybe energy sits in that kind of space where it's an element that we're not going to really be able to measure or test until we have some sort of advancement in the technology that we have available to us to measure it, right? Especially as we get into the quantum realm and I hesitate talking about quantum stuff within, with regards to spirituality because I feel like it's really misused in the spiritual space. But I've done like a little bit of, of research and like learning around quantum mechanics and everything. And it does seem to fit with this idea. So now I'm getting a picture in my head. So, like, there's so much space in between all of the particles that make everything up. If energy could exist inside of that space, then there could be a physicality to that, that we just don't completely understand yet. Because you can feel it. You can feel it in your hands. Like shiatsu practitioners learn to feel energetic flow through the acupressure points. Um, Acupuncturists can feel the energy in the pulses, in the wrist. So it's palpable. It's just we don't have an instrument for it. So I think like some sort of electromagnetic current is probably would be my best guess at this point that also has mass. <laughs> yeah. So I just got, cause I was like, how do I describe this? And I just got that picture and I was like, oh, I'm not gonna, I don't know how to describe it. Like, you know, um, what is the other subatomic particle like quark and is it quantum foam? I don't know. But anyway, I just got that picture. And I'm also, I'm, I'm a visual thinker as well. And that is one of the challenges. And I would really recommend to anyone who does any intuitive, spiritual channeling, anything to start trying to identify what comes from me, what comes from where. And I do that a lot because I know I have this knowledge about certain things. So I'm going to supply that knowledge. But then I also get like intuitive nudges and other ideas that come in, and then I'm synthesizing the two. And I think a lot of people are unconsciously synthesizing their knowledge and what they're getting intuitively, but they're not having the mindfulness to know what's coming from where. So that's definitely something I always try to do. And I think that helps us be more accurate when we're talking about these really um, difficult to quantify concepts.
1: That's really interesting. So the the image that you were getting, do you think it was yours? It was something that you channeled, or was it a synthesis? I think it was a synthesis. <clears throat> I really loved what you shared about people being able to feel energy in various uh, contexts. Um, I had an experience like I believe I had an experience like this recently so I think it was just yesterday actually so I went into this crystal shop Mm -hmm. Um, I had a a short shopping list because a friend recommended I I, I buy something in particular from there I think it was petrified wood and uh, so I go in and you know I just have a look around and at one point I get this headache out of nowhere and I look up and it it said, like, it was, like, this um, glass, like, type of encasing, and it said, like, you know, something along the lines of high-resonance crystals, you know, we'll just show them on request, and I'm, like, whoa, but, like, I, I felt it before I've seen that, or at least that's how I recall experiencing it, and that's, like, mm-hmm. I remember experiencing it in the moment, so I was, like, okay, this is weird. <laughs> so, yeah, very recent experience with that. So, I... All in all, to say that I, I hear you when I talk about being able to feel this thing that we call energy, but we're not quite sure what it is. Um, and I think it's an important question to ask because I have asked this question before on the podcast. And some people define it, uh, you know, very textbook physics, like the capacity to do work. And I think it may well be that, but we're still kind of need to map What do you think about
0: that? Well, what I think is interesting, so my understanding of energy from a more traditional scientific perspective is that it's not actually identified as a physical entity. Mm -hmm. It's more about what is released in certain interactions. So for example, when we are creating energy aerobically and our adenosine triphosphate breaks down into adenosine diphosphate and there's a release, the energy is released from that interaction, right? And when we're talking about how all mass has the potential to be energy, you know, when you're going through a fire, it's releasing that heat is energy. But it's not actually, and I could be wrong on this, so I will definitely take any kind of correction. It's not identified as like having a substance, like a mass that we can measure. It's more it almost seems like it's an ethereal substance that's released in reactions that then allows us to fuel things. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's an accurate representation of how energy is described in a more traditionally
1: scientific way? I'm not a physicist, (laughs) so I would, just as you, I'm a little bit, I don't know if I should give an opinion or have an opinion on this or if I even can have an informed opinion on this at this point. But I do find it a fascinating question, and I think we touched on some important aspects today because what i really liked about how we approached this is that direct experience is important it is informative and there may be sources of knowledge beyond what we currently know and what and what i hear from you is that we have this knowledge coming from direct experience or channeling and then we have the knowledge that we acquire via scientific means let's say and we can and should synthesize it, but we should do so mindfully and not mix different things that, you know, in ways that, that don't make sense, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that's a good summary?
0: Yes, I do. <laughs> I also think that there's, and this is a, a concept that I've been playing around a little bit with, is how much, how much science doesn't take into account lived experience or personal mm-hmm. experience or... You know, how people feel in their bodies, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the term medical gaslighting Mm -hmm. and how there are often worse outcomes for people who are women or who are minorities. And, you know, in those cases, we like to think that science is very objective, but actually the information of, for example, the subjective pain experience of someone is a very valuable source of information, but it's physically impossible to objectively measure pain. So I feel like there is like this window in the scientific world where we like to, like we're missing a chunk of information that is important information because it doesn't fit into the definition of what is like
1: scientifically testable. Do you Mm. know what I mean? I completely hear you and agree. And I think that's a rabbit hole all on its own. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) I really love that you brought this up because I think when we talk about scientific limitations, Uh, a lot of things come into play and one of the ones I'm most fascinated by and I think we really really need to tackle is the fact that science did not develop in a vacuum independent from human biases and all the nastiness that's in the world right so it's a known fact like you were talking about medical gaslighting you know that's a consequence of what well excluding women minorities from scientific research and so then you lack that direct experience direct yeah you lack that insight into their direct experience and Mm -hmm. we simply don't know as much and are socialized to not think as much about you know what might be ailing someone who is not cis hetero western you know male stereotype you know like who's not aligned or not us the default human the default human yes so we we, we are not used to diverging from the quote-unquote default human and um a lot of this happens um arguably because of the effects of colonialism and capitalism um on western science and i was wondering do you want to touch a little bit on that because i know you yeah. have
0: some like that. i mean i think that I think that the thing that we need to remember, so, you know, I try to look at both sides of it, right? Spirituality and science. And the scientific community often looks down on spirituality and alternative, uh, complementary approaches to, to healing and health and, and all of those things. But it's like, they forget that the reason that people are going to those places is because they've tried to go to a doctor, um, for endometriosis and been told that it's just period pain until the point where, you know, I read one story that the woman had to have her kidney removed because she had been in pain for so long and they'd ignored her. You know, the the kind of foundation of the scientific community with a lot of what we look at with health and public policy and, you know, quote unquote, the objectivity of science is actually anything but. And. I think the scientific processing community should take some accountability for that imbalance um i don't know if you've read the book invisible women um i know of it yeah and so in it um i want to say it's caroline criado perez but i could be wrong on that but it's definitely invisible women but she goes through the entire book and talks about how there's a lack of data that takes into account the experience of minorities the experience of women The, you know, basically for a very long time, the default human was a white, straight man. And so I think there's even an example in the book of how they tested a period medication on men for their trials. Yeah. So I do believe that we need to have objectivity and testing and assessment. But on the side of the scientific community, there does need to be, I think, some accountability for the fact that there's a lot of gatekeeping. um, There's a lot of ignoring of people who are different. And then that leads to people needing alternatives for care and support because they were never taken into account in the first place.
1: And then when some of these alternatives end up working, then it challenges the dominant paradigm on another level as well. Um, And I think these two things are related. Um, The exclusion of, again, quote unquote, non-default humans and their perspectives and their experiences, and the exclusion of spirituality and things that might not fit into the model of reality that we have from current scientific uh, knowledge. And and I think that makes complete sense. I mean, we had this very narrow group of humans who were fairly homogenous, who did develop the whole scientific enterprise in the beginning, and it got more and more diverse as time went on. But arguably, we're we're still not somewhere where we have parity or full inclusion. Um, So we need to be mindful of that as well. Uh, but yes, of course, if we have if you build something on a foundation that's biased and it could not have been, you know, Western white straight men, it could have been, you know, Eastern women, it, it, regardless of who it was, it would have been limited, right? Because the idea is to include all perspectives to get an accurate for close to accurate as close to accurate as possible idea of what reality is. And to me, this this has two levels, because on the one hand, you ignored uh, direct experiences of people who are not included Um, but then on a second level just the way we think of doing science and how it's been built the words we use in how we talk about science uh, these things have been colored by the same biases and they limit what we can see and they limit our theories they limit the tech we have which limits how much we can look at things like spirituality and uh, it's it's multi-level madness. <laughs> it really is, it really is. Um I think this is very a very good uh primer to something that you talk on your blog on the spiritual trap of going into harmful things like anti-trans, anti-science, racist stuff like and i think these things i can see a connection point between these things and i was wondering if you'd like to take us deeper into that
0: well i think um it's it's tricky with spirituality because like we just talked about like there is an understandable reason that many people go into more alternative thought points right there's a reason they they go to the doctor they don't feel heard they do the other things they have these um people have experiences that that they know are real like you know we've talked about you feel something and it doesn't make sense from the call like the dead world hypothesis you know that there's nothing spiritual Mm -hmm. and you know it's real and so then you kind of start going deeper and deeper and deeper but the problem is is that in the spiritual world there is a lot of spiritual hierarchy so And I mean, this is human nature, right? We will look to leaders because we want to feel like we're following someone who knows what's going on, who knows what they're doing. Um, And people unconsciously feed their ego. So they talk about how much they can channel and how much they know and, you know, how they're connected to these ascended masters and everything. Um, But unfortunately, there is a pipeline because when you start to go, well, I can't rely on science because science is limited. So I'm going to believe in spirituality. A lot of people then just throw away all of their critical thinking faculties, right? They will just start to believe anything. And, and this is another problem with the science and spiritual dichotomy where it's like, well, if science, if, if I can't trust science for this, because I've had this spiritual experience and it's real. So therefore I can't trust anything scientific. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I'll just go down this rabbit hole. Throw the baby with the bad water. Yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff in the scientific community. Some yeah. of the, you know, advances that we've made, and some of the, you know, uh, the research that's been done, and the information that we have about the body, it's all amazing, right? There are some bad things, mm-hmm. and there are some good things. But because people throw out like all of the scientific stuff then they start to go down these rabbit holes. And unfortunately in the spiritual community, there does, there is a tendency towards like hyper individualism. Um, so we're all responsible for our own situation. And because they think that science is flawed and therefore shouldn't be trusted, it's very easy for them to fall down the rest of that. And that's where you see like the QAnon, the the spirituality to QAnon, the spirituality to anti-vax, which I'm sure we don't want to go into this. That's a whole other kettle of fish. But, you know, you fall down these rabbit holes because you start out like, well, I've had a spiritual experience. And then anything seems possible because it's like, well, if this is real. It's kind of like how people used to say like marijuana was a gateway drug, right? Because they'd Mm -hmm. go, oh, all drugs are bad. Marijuana is not so bad. Maybe the other drugs aren't so bad. But if we'd never put marijuana in the bad drug category and it was in the category with drinking, then maybe it wouldn't be a gateway drug because it would be on that side. Do you know what I'm trying
1: to say? It's an imperfect analogy, but what I hear um and correct me if that's not uh the point you were making is the fact that we tend to swing to extremes and Whereas we should seek to land in this land of nuance and you know questioning things at each step. So you started talking about how well science is imperfect. So now I'm jump- jumping to spirituality, but without realizing that spirituality is imperfect as well, um, and that should also be questioned. Um, and you know you might land on a truth. And this is where I feel strongly. Like I feel. It's not that we will all arrive at the same answers. Like, first of all, that would be incredibly boring. <laughs> yeah. But I, 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 I do not, I never resonated with extremes. And I feel like one of the fears is that if we do come more in this, like, in between a nuanced space, well, I agree with this, but disagree with this, da, 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 like you were bringing up the example of marijuana, then it opens us up to more risk. In a way. So I think we're kind of trying to shield ourselves from that because I think it's a very human thing to want certainty. This is good, this is bad, and this is good and bad for everyone. Yes. (laughs) So yeah, that's what I heard from what you were sharing. But was there another dimension to that you wanted to add or
0: I think maybe the only other thing is that if we allowed for more gray area. So like you said, this is good, this is bad. We have this science spirituality binary, right? Mm. If we allowed for more gray area to say, okay, there are these spiritual experiences that maybe if we have enough people, you know, I mean, like, we need to change the way we do science. Like, I really like uh, Brene Brown's research because I feel like, you know, a social science, it is taking into consideration people's lived experiences, right? Right. So Mm -hmm. could we do that with other things? And if we had that in a gray area, then if somebody had a spiritual experience Mm -hmm. and it was like, okay, maybe that can be a thing and we can look into it and we can do different kinds of studies and it can be incorporated into the scientific process in a different way, then they wouldn't feel like they're so far to the outside of the scientific realm that -hmm. they're going down to, you know, there are reptiles that are running the world.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like the exclusion further is a radicalization of views. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can totally see that. And I think well it's it's difficult, right? Because it's difficult to even bring up discussions. I think human fear, like at the end of the day, like I've been diving into these topics um for the past well oh, over I think it's over two years at this point. And it's it feels like everything boils down to fear. So I'm not that much about what people necessarily believe anymore. Like, I think it's more important how you arrived to that belief. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we might. That's why I was like, I don't think we're all landing in, in quite the same spots, but okay, but what was your process of getting there? Uh, because we're all gonna be informed by our own experiences, knowledge in different ways, right? But I think, and so, So the process of where you're getting, where you are getting, so using discernment on the way, but also having the openness and the grace to say, and I can change my mind, and other people can change their mind as well, and not just like very desperately hold on to, because sometimes I think, you know, especially because we talk about all these spiritual things, and it's a question that's on my mind, what would happen if... I don't know, tomorrow all of this is disproved and it turns out we've just been imagining everything. Well, you know, harder to do <laughs> on your own since you're experiencing them. But for someone like me who doesn't have a lot of direct experience, you know, uh, m- you know, I could imagine, okay, what if none of this is true? So then what happens to my identity? I think that's an important question. I think as long as we're solid in our identity and we ground it into something that's not necessarily being right all the time, <laughs> Yeah. No. then we have way more freedom to go on this like chessboard of nuance and see where it lands us without falling into weird traps that yeah. can be dangerous. Yes. I agree with that. And I would say with the addition of with guardrails, right? Mm-hmm.
0: So I will be like, I, I think you're right. I want to understand how people get to their conclusion, but there are going to be some things for me that are out of bounds. hmm Right. So like, for example, if you decide that you are anti-trans people and you can explain your nuanced view of how you got there, that to me is still going to be out of my bounds. Mm -hmm. Right. Because within my values, that's not okay. Um, So. It's kind of like how you see in the spiritual space of time, like, there is no right or wrong. And I know that's not what you were saying, but, like, just as an example. Mm. And I'm like, yes, there is, like, a massive space in which there is no right or wrong because it's nuanced and everybody can have their belief. But there is a ring around that space where, to me, there is an objective bad and good. For example, do not murder people, mm. like, in cold blood. Maybe if they're, you know, attacking you or something, but... Mm. So yes, so I agree with what you say. And then I always just say with the guardrails, with that like outermost perimeter of like, let's accept a lot more than maybe most people want to accept, but still recognize that there are some bounds that should be held.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree. And I think it's important to raise this issue of values um, because we do, we do need those value parameters and we're not all going... I think this also helps us give more grace to ourselves and other people just realizing our top values are not the same so obviously we we will prioritize things differently depending on our top values and you know you might say well you know i don't want to hang out with you because our values are completely different ends of the spectrum okay you know that's fair but i think also realizing that affords some grace to to understand okay i understand where this person is coming from they don't have to be my friend i don't have to agree with them but they're human and i'm not going to dehumanize them
0: Yes, I think that's really important.
1: So we talked quite a bit about discernment. um, And circling back to our bodies, um, how you talk about this importance of communicating with them and having the line of communication open. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I try to do that, you know, sometimes I wonder, well, how do I know I'm not just imagining this? Is this genuine? Am, Am I kind of making this up? Like, what would you advise to make that distinction? Well, I think that the truth
0: is with like all the stuff where you're communicating with anything inside yourself and you're trying to identify or anything that's non-physical, there's always going to be that question. Like, how do I know it's true or not? Right? So there does come a point where you have to trust yourself. However, I would say a couple of things. So number one, when I'm helping people connect with their bodies, generally speaking, it feels like it's coming from your neck down. So if you ask yourself a question and it feels like it's being originated in your head, then that's usually a sign that your mind is trying to help you or it's not you. Like one of the things that I developed as I got more into, because like I started channeling like years ago just because I was doing automatic writing and it changed from me writing about myself to something saying you to me. I really tried to notice where do I feel like things are coming from? Sometimes they're coming from over here. Sometimes they're coming from over here. Sometimes my mind, sometimes my body, Mm -hmm. sometimes to the left or the right. And so the first thing to do is really hold it lightly. So it's okay to say, I don't know, but maybe it's from below my neck. I don't know, but maybe it's from my head. Like it's okay to be uncertain because that's where you have to start. And then once you go from, I don't know, but I think it's here, you'll notice that the more you practice, the stronger it gets. So I don't know if you've heard the saying, neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I look at that is every skill that you're trying to build, every single time you try to use that skill, it gets better, right? Because those neurons are starting to wire together and build a better connection. So when you're first trying to listen to your body, It's not, you're not going to be sure. You're not going to be sure what you're feeling, but every time you even try, you're building that skill. And then the other thing that I always like to say to people is that even if you're 100% sure it's coming from your body, it does not make you obligated to do what your body says. And I think this is what people worry about when they start listening to their body or they start listening to the higher self or their intuition is, it's like, oh, well, my, my higher self says this, so I have to do it. My body says this, so I have to do it. No, you are still in control of your life you are still the person with the agency if your body is like, you know what I really don't want to go to work today and just watch Netflix and you're like, well, if I don't go to work, I'm gonna be fired You don't have to listen to your body mm-hmm. And I think that's something that helps because I think if you if your mind or yourself thinks that everything your body says you're gonna have to do, your mind's going to run a lot more interference right because it's going to be like it is like we are not going to do that. Whereas if you just go, well, just let the body say what it wants and then we can negotiate or we can make a plan or we can find a compromise, then it'll get better. And then eventually what will happen is that you will know it's from your body. And then, of course, if you need help, you can always come to someone like me who can help hold that space for you and help kind of differentiate some of the things until that skill gets better.
1: Yeah, That's awesome. I love it. I almost hear like we have this – tendency to look for hierarchy and we're like oh that my body said so my higher self said so and we kind of put ourselves at the bottom of the hierarchy whereas what you're saying is whoa you have you have a say as well so i think that's very cool um on the topic of negotiating with our bodies the core message that underpins your work is that our bodies want to help and guide us Um, Mm -hmm. based on what you said earlier, they, you know, they, they, they may or may not say things that we agree with or that are practical, but you know, if they do want to help and guide us, um, why do they sometimes hold us back from doing things that are good for us? Like, for example, like I, you know, whenever I'm getting ready to jump on recording a podcast, I'm excited. I love doing this. I love putting it out, but my body's also like, run away. (laughs) Don't do it. Yes. Yes. That is really common. So there's a couple
0: of things that I say to that. So first of all, um, and I actually, let me just expand a little bit about what you said. So this idea that the body is here to be your support in this life, it's something that I've come to the conclusion of working with people. And honestly, the energy that bodies have sometimes when I'm working is it's like they're little puppies and they just wanna, They it's it seems like they chose you. Like if we're saying that the soul chose this life, the body chose to be your partner and it wants to support you. And I've actually had bodies be like, I don't know if I can, you know, support her enough in her work. I'm, I'm worried that I'm going to let her down. Right. So I really, really think bodies want to be our partner. Right. And our bodies have access to a lot more information, you know, cause we have so many nerve endings and sensory things throughout our body. But also the main purpose of our bodies is to keep us alive. Right. So the programming that our bodies have genetically through DNA, through thousands or millions of years of evolution, before we even reached this level of consciousness, um, like, you know, prefrontal cortex development was safe, fed, rested, right? So our body wants to be efficient. It wants to burn as few calories as possible. It wants as little effort as possible. It wants to keep you away from danger because that would have kept you alive and make sure that you have enough food. So a lot of the things that our body is pushing back on are things that it actually thinks isn't safe. And there'll be that like kind of complicated interplay between like, you know, for your example, why does the body feel the podcast isn't safe? Might be a number of reasons, you know, There, and I'm guessing here, I'm not going to connect in to try and ask your body, but like it might be something like, I'm afraid that I'm going to make a mistake and my guest is going to lose respect for me. I'm afraid that everything's going to go wrong and I'm going to feel super embarrassed. Like In the case of people who are neurodivergent and have rejection-sensitive dysphoria, it is literally painful when a mistake happens or when they get something wrong. So our body will really want to help us avoid that. So the number one thing is often that the body has an experience and it might be evolutionary or it might be from childhood or it might be from an experience you had in your life where it was like... Last time we were in this situation or a similar situation, there was pain. So I want to avoid that pain. I'm not convinced that this is safe. So what I recommend for that situation is you can connect into your body and you can ask it, you know, I'll usually tell people, ask where it lives, right? And then you can go into that place and and the body might show you a memory or an experience that you had. Sometimes it's a past life thing. Sometimes it's a generational thing. And then you can help to clear it. And then usually that fear goes away. So, you know, one example is I had a woman who I was working with and she, every time she would move forward in her business or do something to like market or launch, whatever, she would get a massive migraine, which would incapacitate her. And so in working with her body, we were able to understand what those things were that the body was worried about happening. And then the body was able to be on board. And the body actually gives really good advice about, you know, I've worked with people who've been in chronic burnout. And so the body's like, I don't want you to do this because I don't want to go back into burnout. So you set up a plan with the body of like, okay, that makes sense. How can we have rest or take care of ourselves and still do the things that we want to do going forward? You know, so that's basically why it's the body's trying to keep us safe. And it just doesn't understand that it's running on a program that is no longer um, the correct one. And it's by communicating to our bodies that we can figure out what's going on.
1: Mm. That's awesome. Thank you. Like, I love your metaphor of a puppy. Like, it also feels like a small kid. It's like, Or like a toddler even, like, I'm just going to cry because I'm unhappy, and then we kind of have to tease out what the problem is and what the solution might be Mm -hmm. from a more adult type of consciousness. Would that be an appropriate metaphor as well? I think so.
0: The only thing I will say is that the reason I use the puppy is because a puppy really wants to please you. Mm. And a child does sometimes want to please you, but often children are so self-centered because that's where their brain development is. They might not be there. But yes, otherwise, I think that's a good analogy. Got it.
1: Catherine, there is a question I really love asking my guests, which is an imagination question. So let's imagine that it's 50 years from now, which is quite a long stretch of time. And I want to ask you, what advances do you hope that we will have made by then in developing the relationship with our body? Oh, that's a big question. Um, So one of the things that really bothers
0: me is and we're getting away from this a little bit now but for a long time the narrative was that the mind and the body are separate and even though now we intellectually know that um you know our muscles can create hormones that our hormones levels will affect our mood uh the amount of the well how well rested we are um and how strong we are is going to affect our mental health we still often treat our body like it's just something that we have to lug around. It's like, oh, I have to exercise. Oh, I have to eat right. Oh, I have to get some sleep. Like we treat our body like a burden. And our body is actually a wealth of information. Like the stuff that bodies have told people to do to help them. Some of them have been amazing. Like sometimes it's as simple as like you need to take the supplement. And then they take the supplement and they're amazing. they feel great or you need to eat this food or you need to do this. And sometimes it's a lot more deep than that. So what I would love to see in 50 years is that we treat our body as an integral part of us. And instead of treating the sensations we get from our body like annoyances and irritations, we treat them like valuable information. Like think about how many times – and I'm guilty of this too. Have you had a pain or a nickel? has something not felt right in your body and you just keep going and mm-hmm. you ignore it until it goes away. And that's what most of us do. Mm-hmm. And so if we could treat every sensation that we get from the body, because it's not just about pain, like the starting point is pain. If you have pain, you need to find out what's causing the pain. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's feeling heavy. There's feeling slow. Like we're moving slowly. There's, um, feeling like congestions of energy in our body like there's something thick in there and these are a lot more subtle that you develop as you develop a better relationship with your body but half of us don't even register our pain signals because we're literally taught push through everything your body feels Mm -hmm. keep going until your body breaks or um maybe indulge in a little bit of self-care so i'd really like to see our body like being seen as an integral part of us as humans and not
1: just like a meat suit that we're carrying around yeah it's i agree and that whole message of grind grind work hard play hard you know it goes so much against our body so this is a very very important message thank you so much lastly katman i want to ask you and i know you have a longer answer to this uh <laughs> where can our listeners find you and your work and share the exciting news as well
0: Okay. So, um, you can find me on my website, uh, which is miscellany.me.uk, which I'm sure will be in the show notes. And that website name uh, has a whole story behind it, which I won't get into now, even though it doesn't make sense for a healing facilitator. Uh, I do have a free body connecting audio that I would love for everyone to download because it just starts you with connecting with your body. Um, one of the people who took it was like, Oh, I was just expecting a normal body scan. And I was really surprised that I actually heard a message from my body, which made me very happy. So you can download that. And I am working on a new podcast called What the Woo, which you can imagine what that's a derivative of. Mm-hmm. And um, it's basically looking at where there's overlap in science and spirituality, where there's shortfalls in both of them, and how all of this intersects into the way that we interact with our body, because I really feel like the body is kind of the battleground for science and spirituality with like the different health approaches that people take and and the different things that people think about their body. Um, And yeah, we're gonna cover everything from like the different flavors of spirituality, you know, non-Western spirituality. We're gonna talk about some of the advances and limitations in science and where there's overlap. So I'm really excited about that.
1: That's really awesome. Congrats on your new podcast. Congrats on What The Woo. And I am look, so looking forward to listening to it. Listeners, if you enjoyed today's conversation, it's a no-brainer. Go check out Catherine's What The Woo podcast. And um, yeah, with that being said, I think this wraps up our episode today. So this has been Catherine Creighton Crook. And I'm so, so happy to have had you on, Katman. Thank you so much again for your I time, knowledge, pleasure. insights, humor, <laughs> everything that you brought today. Thank you. Thank you for
0: having me.